Good to have you here at Thrive this morning. We are in the seventh week, believe it or not, of our series. So just over the halfway point in our series called Justified, How God Mends Broken Lives and a Broken World. And uh, we are now going to be in Romans chapter 6. So we're kind of moving along. In this series, we've discovered how God does these things. He does them by justifying us. That is a very key word that comes up again in our text today. It comes up through the book of Romans. What does this mean to be justified by God? What we find out, though, at the first week, and it runs through this whole lesson, is that Romans is not simply about being justified. Romans is in the context of a society where every it was fractured, where there were groups of people against each other in a lot of ways, in competition with each other, ranked ahead and below each other, um, slave versus free, Gentile versus Jew, even male and female um, didn't, quote, get along in this society. And Paul says that is an important sign when in the church, if we have fractures, if we have divisions, if we have one group opposed to another group, we are really not understanding this teaching of God's justification, okay, justification. And so we're looking at that today. So today, as I mentioned, we're in Romans chapter 6. It's kind of a shift. We are now going from um, just talking, quote, about, in a sense, to giving, uh, getting into the practical aspects of what it means to live in this life and how your life and my life can actually change, change to actually grow, to actually not just be stuck in the same old, same old of our, well, at least I know, my selfishness, my egotism, my um, wrapping things around my life, you know, in my ways. And so we're going to look at how that happens, a decisive break that has happened through Jesus Christ, how it actually comes about for all of us to experience on a daily basis. I think Timothy Lane puts it well. He writes... The change most needed in our lives isn't a change in our situations, although a lot of people, I think, are thinking if COVID just goes away, everything's fine, right? No. And relationships, but in us. The thing God is most intent on rescuing us from is ourselves, okay? Now, that might be a hard point for you to say amen to this morning. Could I hear an amen? Okay, maybe it's easy. I don't know. Um, but I'm my greatest obstacle. I'm not the first who said that. Some, um, a couple of you might know who this man is. Jack Parr? Very few. He was the original night, uh, Tonight Show host, wasn't he not? And he said, uh, my biggest obstacle in life is me. <laughs> so I think he understood that. And I think his life probably portrayed that from what I've been told. I never saw him, I'm sorry. And I just remember Johnny Carson, which most of you don't even know who that is, let alone Jay Leno. You kind of have heard of Jay, huh? He's still alive. Well, Johnny is too. Anyways, back to the point. The biggest change that needs to happen is me. I got to get out of my way. It's not even my way. I got to get out of God's way. So today we're going to look at that. And it starts in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, as we're going to read along with this. And you can follow along with this through the version of the Bible app. And if you go to events, more and events, you will find the notes to this sermon right there in all of the quotes, just like the last one from Timothy Lane. 
But we're going to start reading in Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Wow, we could continue in this text. It keeps going, and you might want to read a little more of Romans chapter 6 later this week. But from this text and from this chapter, we're going to look at these three main points today. That in order to bring about this change, in order to experience change, we need to first, A, recognize your innate spiritual slavery. B, realize the depth of your cosmic unity, and C, consider daily your new identity. We're going to look at these points one at a time. First of all, to recognize your innate spiritual slavery. And right away, you're going like, what? Slavery? What are you talking about? Well, I'm getting it right out of the text. <laughs> okay? It's not something I'm making up, but it's out of the text. We've seen a number of passages. First of all, it starts out, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what you'll notice in Romans 6 all of a sudden is that sin is no longer in the plural like a bunch of sins that you do, but sin is singular, as in this text and all the way through, that it becomes a power that is effective in your life. Paul says the whole point of Jesus' death and resurrection was to put that reign, that power of sin, to death and to live a new life. And it's signified by how baptism is a putting to death and a raising to new life. Then verse 6 of this, he says, We know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be, here's the word, enslaved to sin. And again in Romans 6.12, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now in this verse, that word for reign is actually basileo, which I know you go like, what? It's, it's basically a basilea is a king. And so it means to be the king, to be in control, to be in charge, to be the ultimate authority. And what Paul is saying is, in your life and mine, before Jesus, guess what's in charge? Sin. Yeah, now, I know that word sin 
is not a popular word these days. Whatever happened to it, right? We don't want to talk about it. We'll talk about foibles. We'll talk about uh, mistakes were made. Have you ever heard people talk about something going wrong and they say, well, mistakes were made? Notice they don't say, I made the mistake even. They don't, they don't credit themselves with it. They just say, mistakes were made. <laughs> what does that, you know? This is the problem with sin. It never wants to actually be recognized. It's always kind of playing this game of hide and seek. And we're always trying to justify it in some, well, you know, I'm, I've got, you know, I'm broke, you know. And there's a lot of words for sin. And I, I don't want to harp on it right now, but sin is a power that can, can control you and me. It controls us. And you might say, wait a minute, I'm not controlled by anyone. That's what we think. That's part of the control. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this term before, uh, the golden handcuffs. Have you ever heard that? Um, first time I did was when I was a campus pastor at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Red stick, that's what Baton Rouge is. Yeah. And um, at LSU, a number of the students at the campus ministry that I, I was a part of, they, um, they were in law school. And what they feared was leaving law school and getting the deal of a lifetime, the golden handcuffs, which meant a high-paying salary at a high-powered firm, but after and with the high amount of debt that they had from law school, they'd get out and, oh, yeah, man, I could pay my, I can pay my debts off in two years, and I'm making, you know, huge amounts of money. But then they found out within a month of being there, that meant 80 to 100 hours of work per week, always being on call, always having to produce, always being demanded of, having no life outside of the law firm, the golden handcuffs. Now what uh, these law students realized, at least some of them did, most of us are oblivious to the golden handcuffs in our lives. We have things that we have said, oh man, that's going to give me so much. And they promise, but they cannot deliver. Those things in our lives. And in fact, in the end, it can enslave you. Just like a high-powered salary that sounds so awesome, but in the end, you find out it really takes over. I think Bob Dylan was right. Back in the 1980s, he had an album, Slow Train Coming, and in it he wrote, you got to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. We're always serving somebody. We're always following somebody. And you might say, well, me? I am above being tempted into those types of things. I am putting myself in charge of my life, and I make sure that I don't have to, you know, be in, that the man's gotten control of me, the firm's gotten control of me, or anything else. But then probably what's in control of you is your own desire for comfort, your own desire for your desires to be met. Have you ever thought of that? Your self-centered desire to kind of be in charge of your own kingdom, be in control of your own destiny. Here are a couple of tests to find out just how much you could be enslaved to something and that there is in some way something controlling you, okay? First of all, look at your anger. 
Okay? What makes you angry? If something blocks you from getting something good in your life, you can get angry about it. But if something blocks you from something that is ultimate in your life, where you are finding your destiny and where you're finding your, this is what it's all about, I've got to have this or I'm not, when that blocks that, then you get volcanically angry and frustrated. Over time, you might even get bitter about it when you can't get it fulfilled time and again. And this root of bitterness runs in your life and settles in, and it becomes a master that starts controlling your attitudes about everything. Have you ever said to anyone or been in a situation where you said something or did something with someone, and all of a sudden, poof, it just blew up in your face? And you say, wow, I really touched a nerve. Anybody say that before? You didn't touch a nerve. You probably stepped on one of their idols. You stepped on something that was just a little too ultimate for them, and something that was so sacred, so integral to who what they were, something that was controlling them, and you got in the way. So if you want to find out what might be controlling you, look at your anger. Secondly, you can look at your fears. If something good in life is threatened, you worry about it. But if the ultimate in your life is threatened, you are paralyzed by fear. You can't even think straight. And I think that's what's been happening. COVID-19 has brought out all sorts of spiritual masters in people's lives, things that are just too controlling right now. Um, people who are like fiercely, maniacally, oh, I, you can't tell me what to do and I, sh I shouldn't have to wear a mask to go and, you know, and all of a sudden you get that. You get others who say, oh my goodness, if we just, I've just got to, and they just get maniacally afraid of the world in general. Instead of realizing that we're being controlled by some of these fears, what we do is if we can't get this thing to be in control, we find another substitute like alcohol or drugs or pornography or food or even politics today. And all of a sudden, our lives are consumed by that, and we've just got a new master controlling us. So you can look at your anger. You can look at your fears. You can finally look at your sadness. If you lose something good, you'll grieve and be sad. And that's properly so. But if you lose the ultimate in your life, you will be so despairing, it feels like there's no reason to live anymore. And you might be saying to me, but John, you know what? I can look at all those things, and I'm in control of that. I'm not. I'm living in a moderate life, not too much of anything, balancing everything out. I can make my free choices. I'm not a slave to anything. I'm not a slave to sin, whatever that is, really. Okay? Now, I know, thankfully, you all made a decision, the ones who are here today, to come to worship. And y'all made a decision to tune in online right now. You know, you decided what to wear today. Hunter, I'm not sure why you made that decision. But, um, no, <laughs> I, you know I have to, I love you. That's why I tease you so much. Got to have some humor in here. Okay, but um, you have choices to make. I made choices too. I, this is what I decided to wear. Well, <laughs> okay, but uh, whatever. Um, but tell me this, do you have really a choice? 
over what really matters? Like, could you now say, you know what? Let's swear on a stack of Bibles. I will not. I choose not. I will not commit a sin for the next 24 hours. 24 minutes I can't, right? I've probably sinned 25 times already in this. I mean, just my attitude, my ego, everything's involved. I'm so tainted with things at times. I can't just try to, that means not one bad attitude, that you are totally attentive. Victor, you are totally attentive to this message, 100% all the way through, and so focused on God right now. You are just, do you understand how that, it's just a, who, I'm not even totally attentive to my message. <laughs> At least I'm not falling asleep during it, but um, could happen. Okay? So I'm sorry I picked on you too, but I just wanted to. Again, I love you. That's why I do it, right? Um, but the p point is, I can't stop. I cannot stop. I don't have the freedom to say, I'm going to be perfectly loving have the perfect attitude over the next 24 hours, and also do everything I should do rather than avoid it because it's just hard work. Paul reveals in this text and throughout the book of Romans as well as his other letters that human beings are not dealing with a little spot here and a little spot there like you have to have um, the sins just removed, these little things on the outside of you. He says that sin is like a taproot that affects everything that the tree produces. And Jesus himself said the same thing. Bad trees produce bad fruit, and good trees produce good fruit. So sin is something that is so deeply, innately enslaving us, we don't even recognize it. And I think the assumption in all of this is... Um, that we've got an American Christianity that kind of believes in this idea of, you know, there's God's kingdom, you know, where Jesus reigns and stuff. That's good. And no, oh, yeah, there's the kingdom of this world where, you know, things are bad. But then there's this kingdom of me. And I can be in charge and make a decision of which one of those two kingdoms I go into. And the moment I start thinking that I'm able to make, that's part of the deceptiveness of who's really in charge of my life. My selfishness. So reality check this morning. Might be a tough thing to recognize. Everyone has spiritual masters. You're going to be a servant to something or somebody. And it's not going to be free myself to do whatever I please. Until I get rid of the illusion that I'm free naturally, will I ever really make any change? Paul Tripp said it well. He says, change is not found in defending our righteousness, but in admitting our weakness and crying for help. Okay? That's where we're at. The only change I'm going to ever make is when I finally say, you know what, I can't. By my power, No. 
That leads us to the second point, though, today. Because you might say, well, in that case, then how does anybody ever change? How could anything ever change? And that's what's so amazing about our second point, which is realizing the depth of your cosmic unity. That runs through this text. It runs through the entire book of Romans. This is where we see the power of change given to us, where in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 to 6, Paul puts it this way, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Paul says change happens, that change actually has happened. Past tense. And change has come when you have been united with Jesus Christ in a cosmic unity that goes beyond what you can even imagine. You know, most of the world thinks change happens when I make the decision to slowly change. And I start doing things and doing more things and doing more things, and I make a change. It's all the way back to Aristotle and his ethics. He basically said, by doing just things, we become just. That is, by doing just little good things, I become good. And the Bible would say, but you have to be doing good things in the first place. And that has to come from a good tree, as Jesus would say, to produce a good fruit. And that's just not where you're at. You know, um, we think we change first by I make a change, and then slowly over time I am changed by making an internal change, and then it comes out external, and then everybody looks at me as a good person, that I start with myself. But the gospel says starting with yourself is actually the problem, because that's just another form of selfishness. Romans 6 says that God has come in and changed your status outside of yourself. That God changes your status with him first. And then the secondly, the internal change starts coming after that. And you might say, wait a minute, external status change? What big deal? What does that matter? You know, what really matters is what happens inside of me, how I'm feeling about it. No, actually, it's the opposite, okay? Your external status with God needed to change. That's called your justification before the internal changes can ever take place. Because otherwise, it's not any good news at all. It's just good advice. Anyways, it's not something that God has done. It's something you better do and you better feel before it happens. What's so important about external status? You tell me. Tell an undocumented immigrant here in the United States that citizenship is just a piece of paper. It really shouldn't matter anything at all. You know? I mean, they work just, you know, they could say, I've been here for 20 years working, paying my taxes, doing all sorts of stuff. It's just a piece of paper. No. Without that piece of paper, there's a lot of fear. Without that piece of paper, the status doesn't matter how you feel inside. Tell it to a police officer who might stop you for speeding, and all of a sudden you say, well, yeah, I've never gotten around to getting a 
driver's license because, you know, it's just a little piece of plastic. It doesn't really matter. I've been a safe driver. I've never had an accident in the last 10 years of my life. I have, um, you know, I know inside I can drive really safely and I do a good job. You find out how important that external status is of having an actually official valid driver's license. Or for adopting a child, to getting married, all of those things, external status actually matters. That comes first. And Paul says it's your justification, the fact that God has declared you righteous, not guilty, external to yourself as a gift and gives it to you and transfer it to you. That's the good news that gives you the power then to make it real or lived out as it is here in Romans chapter 6. So justification comes first, God's status declaration that you are righteous in his eyes because of Jesus Christ. And from that then, the slow but sure sanctification takes place. And you go like, those are huge terms. You don't even need to use those terms. I'm, I'm using those big ones. We could talk about them sometimes. But this is how Romans 6 talks about it. It talks about the fact that you have been united with Jesus Christ in your death so that now you have been given a new life through his death and resurrection. You have a cosmic unity with Christ. And he says that happens with your baptism. It displays your cosmic unity of how you have been now incorporated into Jesus Christ. It's a change of status. Everyone who's baptized, it says, is baptized into Christ Jesus. You are incorporated into his death and resurrection officially and fully so that now you can live in that new life. And that phrase comes up again and again, both in this book and almost every one of Paul's letters, in that fact of being in Christ. Everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. You have been given in Christ a whole new life. And it's just as if I had a piece of paper or I could take my face mask right here and place it inside of my iPad. And whatever happens to this iPad now happens to that face mask. So if um, I accidentally drop this iPad in water, the face mask gets wet. If I take this face mask home, or this iPad home, the face mask goes with it. Whatever has happened to Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, now is yours. It's happened to you. You are in Christ. You have a new status. Jesus Christ covers you, his righteousness, his and that gives you the power to make the change. So, in Christ, you have been crucified. In Christ, you have been buried. In Christ, you have been raised. In Christ, you now have a new life. So this external change in status gives you the power to make the internal change. And so, first of all, you recognize your innate spiritual slavery. You realize the depth of your cosmic unity. And then thirdly now, see... You consider your new identity. So Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love that word consider here. Okay? 
It's the word logizomai. It's where we get the word logic. It's where we get the word to count, to add up. Basically, Paul is saying, in order to make the change, you do the math. You work out the problem. It's real. You count. You consider. You reckon. You see, um, to change your life, to change my life, is not a matter of your willpower. I know most people think, you know, I really got to, you know, it's not your willpower that's going to change you. I don't have enough willpower to make a change. I need to count what has already happened, consider myself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. How does this work? Okay. Um, There's a man named St. Augustine. He lived um, from 354 to 430 AD in North Africa. He's one of the most important um, early church fathers, they call him, Augustine, that you could have. He's written these books that are classics called like the Confessions or City of God. Well, one, and um, to be honest, Augustine was kind of a mess. I don't know if you, at least before he was a Christian, um, he had huge problems with sexual desire, okay? In fact, um, he had many flings before he became a Christian, and just it was out of control in his life. He knew he was enslaved to it. Uh, he thought he was having freedom, but, you know. But he became a Christian, and he became a uh, prominent uh, pastor in uh, Carthage, which is northern Africa, And from there, one day he was walking down the street, and it so happened in the marketplace there was a um, one of his former mistresses that he had these trysts with was walking by and recognized him. It's been a long time since they had seen each other, and she cried out to him and said, "Augustine." He goes, "Hello," and she goes, "Hey," and she started tempting him to let's have another fling, come to my house, la la la. And he goes, no, thank you. And he keeps walking. And she goes, she thought at first, well, maybe he didn't recognize me. Maybe that's the problem. He just didn't know who I was. And so she called out to him, Augustine, don't you remember? It's me. And Augustine said, no, I recognized you. But it isn't me. It is no longer me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In a sense, he was saying, I used to be the person who needed female affection. I used to be the person who had to have my desires fulfilled to feel like anything. But now I have a new master. I have a new life. I have a new lover. I have the affection and love of God in Jesus Christ who completes me. I have a new identity. I've done the math. I've considered myself now dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. I've considered that old way of life wasn't fulfilling. It didn't give me what I needed. But now in Jesus Christ, I have all that I need, and I can add that up and know I have that identity. The power for him to overcome that temptation on that day in the marketplace was the power of the gospel of who he was in Christ. He was able to say no because Jesus had said yes to Augustine. Jesus had called him and incorporated him into his very life, death, and resurrection. If Jesus did not die on that cross, if Jesus had not said, I'm giving up my life for you, I am risking all for you, I am loving you completely by abandoning everything I have to give to you, 
Of course, there wouldn't have been any new identity for Augustine or for you or for me, but because he's done it, we can now turn around and do the math. You won't overcome the temptation by your own human efforts. It doesn't matter. It's not the willpower that does it. It's the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So I can say, you know what? I used to be the person who needed other people's approval. I'd crumble under any criticism from others. But now I consider the fact that I have gained the approval of God himself, not by my own standards, but by God's grace. And because I am considered the beloved of God, I am blessed by God that he rejoices over me because of Jesus. I am covered with the, the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am in Christ. I no longer need that approval from others. It used to be <laughs> that I'd have to grab after status through a huge paycheck or through other means to feel like I was somebody important. But now I realize the value I have in God's eyes because my life was more precious than silver or gold or anything else because the precious blood of Jesus Christ has saved me from all sin. Do the math. Paul Tripp, again, just to quote him one more time, he says, either you will be getting your identity vertically, that is, from who you are in Christ, or you will be shopping for it horizontally in situations, experiences, and relationships of your daily life. So, how do we change? How does God mend our brokenness? We recognize, first of all, our spiritual slavery. Then we realize our cosmic unity. And then we consider, we count on our new identity. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day, for your word, uh, for this truth that the power is not in our will. The power is not in my trying to kind of pick myself up by my bootstraps. The power, Lord, to change is the gospel itself, that I don't get away from the gospel. I can't have enough understanding of the gospel that I have to be open to. I am, Lord, that you open us up to your good news. And that, as Paul said in Romans 1, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Lord God, I pray today that those who are who have been trying to will themselves to change bad habits they might be experiencing in their life, who are trying, Lord God, to guilt themselves into the changes to change things that they want to change, would understand it is not through the law, not through the will, not through the self, but through your son, Jesus Christ, that you bring the change to us. You justify us. We are declared righteous in your sight, and then we live just into that righteousness, Lord. So give us that gospel motivation, Lord God, in that powerful way. Lord, there are people in our midst who are facing big struggles in their lives, in their health, and in their situations today. And I pray that you'd be working your gospel word in their lives. We lift up to you, uh, Vern, who will go to see his doctors this week, that you grant to them wisdom, Lord. Thank you for bringing him through the ordeals of the last month. We pray, Lord, for your healing to, to bear and to give to his physicians wisdom in knowing how to alleviate any of the pains and struggles that he is still having, Lord God, in his recovery. We lift up to you, Lord Chris, 
who um, at the age of 25 is facing a life-threatening situation with a brain tumor. And we pray, Lord God, that you would be bringing your healing to bear and drawing him closer to you through this. We lift up to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lord, that she is being released from the hospital today. We pray, Lord, for this clinical trial for her cancer of the tongue would go on, Lord, and that you would use it mightily these three different medications together that you would use mightily to bring a cure to her cancer, that you would heal her, Lord God, and that she would praise you and we would rejoice together with you in these things. We lift up to you, O Lord, today um, all of our needs in our community, Lord God. Um, we pray, Lord, for our nation right now that uh, in a time of turmoil and high stress and anxiety and fear and, Lord God, and divisions, that your gospel could bring healing, that we as a church would show how people from different perspectives and backgrounds, Lord God, from different races, not only, quote, get along, but become family because we are equally given full access to your grace through faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. So bless us today, O oh Lord God. We pray as well, Lord, for our ministry as it moves forward in these days where things are still up in the air um, and how best to go about things that you would guide and direct us. Thank you, Lord, that you've been with us and we can trust and rely on you. We pray, Lord God, that you would also um, provide everything that we need as a ministry here at Thrive uh, to effectively reach this community, both at Florida Gulf Coast University, uh, in our campus ministry, as well, O oh Lord, in the community. Lord, bless our efforts uh, tomorrow in our food drive to feed those who are hungry. Give us, O oh Lord, the ability to declare your justice and righteousness in this community through different means as well. Help us to serve effectively so that you are glorified and your kingdom grows no matter what. And Lord, as we prepare for just a few moments to have a Zoom call with those who want to join us, Lord, for Holy Communion at home, and as we prepare for that Lord's Supper for those who are here, Lord, we pray that you open our hearts to receive everything you offer to us, Lord God, in it, and that we would be transformed by it to serve this world by your grace. All things we lift up to you this day in Jesus' name, amen.